Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please? Good evening. You're listening to Straight Talk with Dean and Mark. We thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy another exciting episode of our show. right-hand man, Mark Lee. So, Mark, tell me what's good in your neck of the woods, my brother. Uh, you just said the magic word, hot. It is definitely hot here in North Carolina as well. You know, I had that thing going on with the gruff beard. I'm sure you saw it a little bit when you saw me on our <laughs> other show, the uh, radio show with Mark Lee. So, I just came back from the bar yeah. because I had said I was going to see him on Saturday, and somehow we got our times twisted. I thought that I said... Okay. Uh, 10 o'clock, and um, told all my friends that I said 10 o'clock, but apparently it was 9 o'clock, and he was right. I was wrong, oh. so I uh, did, did but I went down there and got myself straight, so in between two podcasts, in between one and the other, I ran down, and I am now a little bit more on the, uh, you know, a little bit, the beard still there, because, you know, I like my beard looking and everything, but it's uh, definitely a little bit more... Uh, Nice looking and doesn't have that man under the bridge or the Santa Claus look or whatever other look you want to call it. So it's looking a little bit sharper than it has been. So I had to go do a little something about that. So, But while I was out and about, I can tell you that it is definitely hot, but that is not stopping the birds from singing and enjoying themselves. I saw a flight of about, I think it was 10 or 15 of them. Somebody must have thrown a piece of pizza down there, and they were wrestling that piece of pizza. They were they were to have a treat, mm. so they were they were trying to figure out who was going to get it, and you know they, they were trying to do a little sharing. But you know, even animals have their moments where one of them wants more than the other. So every time I turned around, one right. was like, "I'm taking this. <laughs> this is mine." <laughs> <laughs> so you know, it ain't just humans that that, that that green thing going on. It's a little bit of all the species out there. And by the way, you know, I'm over here checking out our website, and I'm waiting for our guests to call in. Of course, we've been watching the madness going on in the world. But I have some good news for you before I go into the studio where I know you're hanging out and everything. But I just looked at our all-time listens. You will be glad to know we have crossed over the 10,000 mark. So we have got 10,002 yes, all-time listens. So we got folks over there that are listening, and we definitely appreciate them listening from all over the world. And, you know, hopefully we're going to keep it building, keep it Go, moving, keep it grooving, and hopefully after a while we'll be at the 100,000 mark. But we have crossed the 10,000 mark, 10,000 all-time listens, so that's a good mark to okay. cross. I don't know about you, but I'm yes, proud sir. of us crossing that mark, and I think it's a wonderful thing that we have crossed that divide. And uh, I don't know, but you know, um, the who? I know, I know that uh, 
and I'm not talking about the band. Some people, they hear who and they think band, but the who is in the health right. organization has told folks that they might want to chill. You know, I know New York has reopened and gotten all happy because they're opening up a lot of things. Retail is open. I think they're going to go to phase two or something like that. So they're real happy up there in New York. And I know, uh, you know, the protests are still going on. I just came back from, didn't see a protest in downtown during this time, but I did see some graffiti that had been put, um, I can't even call it graffiti. This is intentional murals. Intentional murals that are okay. passing the message of Black Lives Matter and other things because they had boarded up some of the buildings just to protect the buildings. And some of those folks mm-hmm. had uh, let artists and others make statements. And there were some very powerful statements there. I'll be putting those on my uh, regular Facebook page at some point or another. But there were some very powerful messages that were shared by uh, many down there. But uh, like I said, when I saw the, the Who was telling folks, you know, slow your roll. You know, we, we know that y'all are glad right. to see some things happening but numbers are going up and some other things are happening so you know we want y'all to get back to a good economy and all of that kind of stuff but you might want to slow your roll down just a little bit a little bit. i think that they have finally declared us in a recession you know they've been trying to avoid that word for a while but they've declared us in a recession and i also saw that some of the orange ones republican compadres have come out and said no we don't like you so and they are some major players. I think that one of the Bushes came out and said, "No, we don't like you." And I know that Colin Powell came out and said, "Nope, don't like you." <laughs> yeah, you know what? He earned it though. He worked hard for it, man. And uh, you know, at this point, we see and they get to see everything that they tried to deny originally, but is in our faces now. So, what's the next step? You know what I mean? Like, you found money. You said the country was broke and all of this stuff, but you found money to give a quote-unquote stimulus check. You found money to send to Israel. You have money that you won't spend to help the people, but you'll take care of the 1%. So, you know, when they start um, speaking, you got to listen to all that they say because in between the madness, somebody's going to tell the truth. And and then it's another what's next moment. So it's important that, you know, a lot of people are debating about whether or not we should withhold our vote. I'm an independent voter. I really don't care about the Democrats or the Republicans. But what I will tell you is you need to vote because if you don't, that's how people stay in control to oppress or uh, hold others back because you didn't vote for the person who spoke for your better interest. I guess you were trying to prove a point, but in your stubbornness, your pride made you stupid, you get to suffer for another four years. So it's something you may want to consider before you uh, discount the whole entire thing. Don't be that dumb. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. We don't want folks to be that dumb. They got to do the right thing. And like you said, don't care who you got. Well, actually, I do have a personal preference, but uh, we just want you to get out there and vote and definitely vote on the local level because a lot of times that local level is the most important level of all. And by the way, the other thing I wanted to thank you, Dean, is I did see that you did pop in on my other website as well when we were doing the afternoon show. So you saw that I had a very enlightening and funny comedian from uh, (laughs) Pakistan and, of course, uh, the musician from right here in North Carolina that is very much 
proud of his roots and uh, roots music and also proud of uh, being native and also proud of blues. And then, of course, we had the filmmaker who did that hilarious film about the dating sites that people go on to and things of that nature. So I did see that you popped in and gave me a hello and a shout out. So I'm doing it on our show. I'm giving you a a shout out back. So I did appreciate you popping in. and uh, I don't know how much you caught of it, but uh, we were having a good old time. Yeah, and that show will actually replay in its entirety on Saturday, June 13th at 1 p.m. It's the Mark Lee Show that will be replayed right here, part of the um, the Level Podcast Network. So we appreciate y'all listening. Y'all keep listening, and we keep providing some uh, good information. We also want to welcome the um, Let's K-12 Better Podcast, who we aired most of the episodes earlier today. And their last show that they've recorded, their most recent show, will air tomorrow, June 9th at 1 p.m. It's Let's K-12 Better. They'll be talking to kids about race is the topic. So make sure that y'all tune in and check that out. Hey, man, right now I got four. I heard the doorbell ring four times. So well, we it like to like with the doorbell ring. Let's see who we got at the door and see what kind of conversations we can get going. Because we right. like things happening at the door. Before I do that, we're going to run this ad real quick, y'all. Let's straight talk with Dean and Mark. The old renaissance is the new renaissance. Standing on tradition while embracing the spirit of distinction. This is the Harlem Brewing Company. Uniquely crafted beer brewed to deliver a taste, a sound, and a feeling that can only be described in one way. Harlem style. So come and take a trip on the A-Train with our Harlem Sugar Hill Golden Ale and our Harlem Renaissance Whiskey, the neighborhood original. All right, and we're back. Carlo, area code 917-LAST-42268. Welcome to Straight Talk with Dana Mark. Tell us who you are and where you're calling from. This is Lucius Barr. I'm calling from New York. Happy to be with you guys. I appreciate right. you, Lucius. I'm so glad that you're able to make it. Lucius is a uh, individual that has been involved in the film industry for a number of years. He's worked with cons. He's worked with all kinds of amazing things. And I just wanted Lucius to come on. I had the pleasure of meeting Lucius through uh, our mutual friend, Shree, who does those COVID talks and the uh, Sunday read-alongs of the New York Times. So you know we had a couple of folks that have done that. So, Lucius, if you would, please tell the little folks uh, that are listening about what you've done in the film industry and about uh, some of the other things that you've got going on in your life. And, uh, of course, we know that the film industry is suffering with all that's going on in the world, particularly I understand that we might not even see films that much this year. I know that I work on the board of a local theater company, and we're talking about uh, showing films with a lesser audience, possibly that happening as early as July or August, but um, also talking about some other things that will happen in that space. And then I know some people are even waiting to release films, so I don't know how that's impacting the film festivals, because I know Cannes is a very big film festival. Of course, Sundance here in the States is a big one. But just share a little bit with folks about what you've got going on in the film world, and then I'm going to bring in my friend Brevin, and we'll get into this whole discussion, because we've got some other guests that I want to have conversations with all during the course of this two hours. But you got the right to be the first one that Dean grabs. So tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll bring in some of the others as well. Thanks. I was born in the East New York section of Brooklyn in 1949. So in those days, every one of my elementary school photographs looked like UNICEF poster. And I think also people anchored in neighborhoods, anchored in community longer than they do these days. People move around a lot more because I had the same second grade teacher as my mother had uh, 29 years earlier. 
So uh, there was a sense of multiculturalism that was really very strong in my childhood. And when I was in high school, I was involved in Red Cross projects. And my last year in high school, I became an intern at the opening year of Lincoln Center, which meant that we were, among other things, providing support for the International University Choral Festival. 30 singing groups from different universities around the world came to Lincoln Center for a 10-day series of concerts. And we were providing, for instance, at the Red Cross chapter, which is just behind Lincoln Center, we had boxed lunches and boxed dinners for a dollar each uh, for these students who came in from overseas. And we also had 19 languages in the Red Cross network for kids who needed help touring the city or visiting the city. So my root system comes from uh, cultural uh, exchange, getting to know who's who in the world and how much we are so very similar. We're all brothers and sisters. And um, after college at State University of Albany, where I was one of the first first freshmen, our freshman class in the fall of 56 was larger than everyone else because they were building a brand new campus. So there again, lots of people coming onto a brand new campus. It was like a playground for me to find out who was who and what was what. After college, I went to Paris working as a student exchange officer. We were sending American students to Leningrad in the Soviet Union, 72 this was, in the Soviet Union to start um, diplomatic or, or, or um, commercial careers. But that was also during the Cold War when everyone who went into the Soviet Union came a week through Paris on the way in and a week on the way out. I, was, I began working in the film industry in 1978 when a friend wanted to propose a film to the American Film Festival in Deauville, France where I discovered that no one in the press office spoke uh, English. No one in the organization spoke English. They were organizing an American film festival just as a promotional event for the city of Deauville. Uh, and at that event, I met a man who invited me to Cannes, because in 1968, as you know, there were student riots, and the whole of France was shut down with a general strike, which closed the Cannes Film Festival in 68. The press officer in those days left and never came back. So for nine years, there was no one in the press office at Cannes who spoke a word of English. And I became the assistant to the press officer, and then a year later opened a separate office for English language films, uh, English language journalists, English language press at the Cannes Festival. So uh, my root system went quickly into the world of getting to know how we get films on the international market, how films can travel the world, how a good film should be shown everywhere in the world, and how we spark interest in good films wherever they come from. Because people think, oh, that's a small country. We don't understand how people live, but no, it's actually the same life is being lived in many different places. So my life is dedicated to that sort of culture of getting to know where things and people come, where people come from and what they've achieved in the way of storytelling. Yeah, and you've done a great job with that. And I want to go into some more details of that as we continue this conversation. I want to bring in some of the others as well. But just really quickly, before I get to Brevin and some of our other guests, I'm imagining that uh, you're even older than I am. I'm 58 and everything. But I'm imagining that some of these things that you're seeing with the protests are reminding you of what you saw in 68 and in the 60s. And, you know, it doesn't matter what culture you're from. I know a lot of people, even my dad who's in here, will turn 80 later on this month are feeling sometimes like we've seen this record several times before and that we've seen it many times before, and hopefully we're going to make a change with a different kind of leadership in terms of who's leading the protest, maybe not in terms of who they're protesting against. But as you're seeing these protests go around the country and even around the world, do you sometimes have a feeling of, I won't say nostalgia, but a feeling that you've already seen this record once before? Uh, 
No, I don't actually. <laughs> I think that every day is new, and it, it, it's really that people get stuck in those modes. But every day is an opportunity, and we shouldn't underestimate the opportunity. Just to, as Dave was, as Dean was saying earlier, opportunities to vote, opportunities to make change, and opportunities to imagine the future, not complain about what's past and present, because there are people now in jail who will be judged. And we have to look at what's going to happen then and where we're going with all of this. So I want to see more speeches. What we did have in the 60s and and later was when against Vietnam, even we had speeches at the end of every protest and people, everyone at my college gym at Albany, for instance, in 70, when we shut down the university, Mike, see you here, everyone took the mic for two minutes to suggest something that we should all do together. So I want to see more leaders emerge and have ideas about where we go next and where we can group uh, go as a group in the next steps. So I see yeah, every well, day is new and every day is full of opportunity. And right now we have to make a clear statement about where we're going as a group. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that, that we have to make some statements. And I am seeing some leaders that are stepping out and even some young leaders that are making some of those speeches. But I would like to see more of that kind that you're talking about that, I'll, like I said, I was a kid and literally a kid in the 60s and a teenager in the 70s as I graduated from college in uh, 1984. So definitely remember some of those uh, speeches that you're talking about from growing up in that area of the 60s. So I would like to see more of what you're talking about. Um, do you want to stay on the line and continue the conversation? Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, Mr. Barr. No, no, I'm just saying what I'm speaking about is individual empowerment, so every one of us has a voice. That's the bottom yep. line. Yeah. yeah, definitely. And I'll definitely stay on the line, and we want to continue the conversation, but I want to bring in uh, Brevin. Uh, can you bring Brevin in for me, uh, Dean? And then I also want to bring in the person in from Australia, because we've got folks listening from all over the world, so don't want to leave them out of the situation. So that'll probably be who I'll go to next, but uh, we'll start with Brevin. Brevin, uh, how are you doing today? I mean, this is a new day, and uh, things are going on in the world, and I know your music career has probably slowed down just a little bit, well, actually a lot a bit, because of what's going on first with COVID and now with the uh, protests, but you grew up in music. I mean, like, when I think about you, I think about the fact that I first met you when you came to uh, the Central Campus and uh, were around the Central Campus as a uh, student several years back and everything, and then uh, I think your brother might have got here before you got here, but you did come to this area and would be hanging out as a uh, youngster, and so I've known you for a number of years, but, I mean, your father was an amazing musician who toured with the likes of Luther Vandross, Vanessa Williams, even Roberta Flack, and things of that nature, and your mother performed on Broadway with folks like uh, Dizzy Gillespie, Marian Anderson, and one of my personal favorites, I'm a big fan of Angela Bofield, and I always have been. I remember that when my folks had their radio station, there were two things that folks knew was probably going to get played if Mark was doing a show. That was the revolutionary songs of Gil Scott Heron and the romantic songs of Angela Bofield. They knew they were going to get some summer days and they were going to get some revolution would not be televised. So you grew up in that kind of environment. So how are you doing? And just tell folks a little bit about what you're doing and how you're surviving in this day and time and what kind of music you're doing and share a little bit about your past and everything. I shared a little bit of what I gave them on a, a brief bio, but I want to hear it in your words. Hey, Mark, uh, so great to hear your voice, man. And, and, um, you know, I appreciate all of that. And, uh, I'm doing great actually. Um, <laughs> I, uh, quiet as kept, I, I, I teach private lessons and I moved all of mine from in person to online. So I've been able to, to continue, you know, surviving as a musician that way. 
Another thing I've done is I've uh, opened a recording studio with a engineer, uh, well, drummer and engineer friend of mine uh, named Jeremy Clemens. Uh, he was uh, my my older brother's college roommate at North Carolina Central years ago, and so our studio is called Break Alive Studios. So and it's in uh, it's in Northern Durham, and um, yeah. So between all that, you know, I've been able to actually keep busy. I mean, you know. I, none of us are performing at this time, right? Just because, you know, with the whole COVID and everything, you know, having large amounts of people inside of, uh, you know, a controlled environment like that is not really a thing. But um, as far as like a little bit about myself, um, you know, yeah, definitely you spoke about my parents. Um, You know, I was raised here in Durham. I was born in New York. So I've kind of, you know, always had a back and forth kind of thing with New York and, and Durham. And, um, you know, a lot of my, my, my father's side of the family is still living up there. But, um, yeah, I was I was raised here in Durham, and, uh, you know, my, both of my brothers are drummers. My dad's a drummer. My mom's a pianist. But she's also an entertainment attorney who, you know, taught entertainment law in uh, Seton Hall Law School in North New Jersey for 35 or so years and uh, also taught some music business and commercial music courses at North Carolina Central in her quote-unquote downtime. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we definitely have a strong connection with the university. And um, and so I grew up, you know, when I was, you know, 10, 11, 12, my brother, uh, my old, my middle brother had entered uh, the jazz program in North Carolina Central. But prior to that, mom, my mom was already teaching there. So I actually ended up, you know, as a young percussionist, you know, being able to play with the big band while I was in high school. And that definitely had, like, a tremendous effect on, on – and just hanging out with my brother and all of his friends, his roommates that I said is now, you know, uh, the engineer and, and, and business partner at the studio and, and uh, you know, Al Strong, Leroy Barley, Brian Miller, tons of monster musicians that – you know, are, are have been in this area for a long time. So that was, you know, a tremendous thing. Um, you know, after completing high school, I actually moved to Miami for a couple years, and I did my freshman and sophomore year at uh, Florida International University, and I got wind that Branford Marsalis was coming to uh, be a part of the, the jazz program in North Carolina Central. So I went ahead and transferred to Shaw Home. And uh, and finished finished college at Central, and then uh, a couple years after that, I went to uh, do my master's at Queens College in New York, and I completed that in 2016, and uh, and you know spent some time in New York, got to play up there, got to hang out a lot with a lot of different you know great musicians. Ben Williams is a bass player that I played with a bunch up there, but I mean you know there's plenty of other people. Uh, Geez, uh, I did some work with um, with Stacy Dillard. I've done some work with uh, with uh, just a lot of a lot of awesome musicians that that live and play in the New York area. And so after I finished uh, after I finished at my master's, I, I moved back to to Durham. And um, since then, and all during that time, I was kind of always back and forth. I never really left. And so since. Of recent, I've been playing in bands in this area and kind of doing my own thing. Um, one of the bands I play with is a 12-piece salsa orchestra called Orchestra Gardell. And, 
you know, we we have our own original music and also, you know, play some salsa covers. And um, I also play with a wedding band called The Shakedown, and we do, like, a lot of weddings. But we also do tribute shows to artists. Um, we have this series uh, at a local at a couple of local uh, places in Raleigh, the Poor House and Lincoln Theater, where we, you know, pay tribute to bands like Colin Oates, Van Morrison, Ray Charles, Phil Collins, uh, just all kinds of, you know, fantastic musicians. We did a couple Prince tributes. We did, you know, so I've been working with them, you know, I want to say actually since about 2012. And then, um, I've led some gigs of my own doing, like, Latin jazz, you know, in a Latin jazz quartet with me playing percussion and drums, bass, and piano. And um, I'm, you know, just playing in, in, in local areas here in, in the Triangle, and that, that's always, you know, just a great time. And, uh, I've done a lot of playing with Al Strong, um, you know, a lot on, on, on his solo material. Uh, I'm Actually, I'm on his album. And um, so, yeah, just... Uh, you know, between all that, I, oh, I've also I'm a member of uh, of Phil Cook and the Guitar Hills. Phil Cook is a is a indie Americana singer songwriter who's from Eau Claire, Wisconsin, but has been based in Durham since about 2005. And I actually met Phil on a kind of a more random pickup recording session we were doing, and uh, he we traded numbers, we kept in touch, and he called me to do his record, and then. We, started doing some touring so um that's been great and so yeah so pretty much since since I got back in 2016 it's been a lot of that and then um you know I want to say Jeremy came down here early 2017 and we started building the studio uh then and it was like finished and I had the you know I opened the financial part of the business and blah blah um right about you know, the beginning of 2018. So, um, yeah, you know, between the recording and teaching private lessons and playing with a few bands and I'm starting to write my own music and, and work on work on my own album, um, I've actually kept busy during quarantine, um, which is a blessing. You know, I can't, I, you know, I don't, I say it with, 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 humility and and gratefulness there are a lot of us out here friends of mine even that are suffering tremendously um from just not being able to perform and it's it's you know it's really hard but i mean at the end of the day you know safety is first so um you know i just try to you know shed light and 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 try to stay as positive as possible and, and just roll with the punches. I'm sure everyone in, in a lot of different industries are that were affected by, by the pandemic are doing, are trying to do the same thing to an extent. So yeah, yeah that's, definitely. That's you're right. Much, yeah, you know, that gives us a good rundown of some of the things you've been involved in and everything you write. So many people are doing that. I do want to get into a conversation with you later about how you think before the pandemic uh, jazz was doing in terms of its popularity. But I want to bring in some of the other guests before we get into some of the discussions around just the world and some may come back around to that. But, uh, Dean, um, if you would, bring in uh, the person from Australia. And then I also want to bring in uh, 
Pratnia, who is uh, involved with some very serious stuff involving India, but she's based in the D.C. area. But let's talk off with Australia, and then we'll go to D.C. after that, and then we'll come back to Charlotte. And then we'll go into the discussions, the roundtable discussions, after we get everybody introduced. So, uh, got the person on from Australia. Tell us a little bit about yourself Money and Homer, what you've yes. got going on in your part of the world. Hello there from Australia. How are you? Doing good. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing pretty amazing over here. It's a gorgeous day here. Sun is shining, birds are chirping, and we are all happy. That is a good thing. And I was actually talking to some friends of mine earlier. It seems like the animals might be a little bit more lively than the humans these days because of what we've gone through with COVID being a world problem. But definitely it seems like Mother Nature is definitely uh, having a respite from some of the things going on with us humans and everything. But tell our listeners a little bit about what you've got going on in your world and what kind of profession you're involved in. And then we'll go into talking to Pradnia and the other guests, and then we'll have a a roundtable discussion like I promised everybody, because like I said, it's just one big dinner party. But uh, just tell a little bit about your history, and then I'm going to bring Pratnia in as well as my guest from Charlotte, and then we'll go into the whole conversation from that point. Awesome. Sounds amazing. Well, about four or five weeks ago, I, I did something pretty amazing. I became a number one international bestseller in Australia, the USA, and the UK for a book that's absolutely changed the world. Uh, It's called Lockdown Took My Income and it's for all of those people out there who have just found themselves without work or without a business or who's lost their income due to what we've gone through. And it's actually a nine-step blueprint to actually help them right from the very beginning start their own income stream or small business from home with little or no money down. So it's it's really taken the world by storm. We... Overnight, we got the number one international bestseller. We also received number one hot new release in the United States as well. So I'm a little bit proud of myself, really. And you rightfully should be. Um, Just real quickly, and I'll come back to some of the discussions. We get further into all the discussions later. But what are some of the tips you're giving folks? Because I know in the U.S., some of us have gotten stimulus money. Some are trying to get stimulus money, some for business, some for individuals. But I do know that there are other parts of the country that either have more stimulus, because I think there's some countries that have gotten the considerable amount that we're getting almost to be small amounts compared to what they're getting. And I imagine there are parts of the world that aren't having any stimulus. So depending on where they are in the world, what kind of advice are you giving people in order to launch a business or in order to maintain living while they're trying to survive the pandemic? Okay, so I actually don't think it matters where you are in the world because anybody can do this. Anybody who has enough belief in themselves can do this. And even if you don't have that self-belief right away, the book's actually really good because it takes you right back to the very, very beginning of working out exactly what it is that you absolutely love, what you're passionate about, what it is that sets you on fire. And when you know this, when you know what it is that you absolutely love to do, you can actually scoot around the old self-confidence issues just for a little while to actually take the action you need. So it's about really honing down on exactly what it is that you absolutely love to do and what you're good at because that's where your superpowers are. That's your genius zone. And that is what you really want to be able to focus on. Once you've got a clear idea then of exactly what it is that you can go out there and create, the ideas just flow. And this is the feedback we're getting from the book is people are saying that they're coming up with ideas that they've never thought of beforehand. 
and they're getting the confidence and the certainty to go out and take the action they need to take to actually make moves and make this happen. Wow, that's some amazing advice and everything. Uh, definitely want everybody, that, as I've been saying, to stay on the line. But, Dean, can you bring uh, Prodney in? Because actually I want to tie in what she's been saying to a mutual friend of ours as well as have her talk a little bit about the project that she's doing with Magic Bus. How are you doing, Prodney? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. It's so good to hear you on Voice to Voice and not just us chatting to each other on Shree's show. As I was listening to the woman from Australia, it sounds like she must have been listening to Shree because every time that we listen to Shree, <laughs> he's always telling us that we need to do something positive with this time that we're locked into the house and everything. So as I was hearing her, I'm like, I think I've heard this every day. I don't know if you were having that same yeah. thought, but I was having that thought because, you know, both me and you oftentimes are – on Shree's daily COVID calls, and I know that he's always yes. putting that message out there. So I don't know about you, but that's what I was feeling as I was hearing her talk about this best-selling book. I was like, dang, Shree might have needed to have written that book because he's been telling <laughs> us that almost daily. <laughs> well, I mean, I you know, your, your, your guest from Australia is probably one of the most cheerful per- people I've ever heard, which I think is amazing. <laughs> um and you know, and what I what I'll say, I love that that she was talking about uh, sort of what people have to do to to help themselves and uh, and and look beyond this COVID situation. So you know, my my day to day, I'm the executive director. You pointed this out of uh, Magic Bus USA, which is a an NGO. It's a top five NGO in India. And interestingly, and maybe you planned it this way. But a major focus of Magic Bus's work is livelihoods. It is to work with kids from age 12 onwards uh, to, to help them build life skills, to help them get vocational training, and then eventually place them in a job. And as you can imagine, with the lockdown in India and with the, the global pandemic situation, we have um, we've had to get creative about finding ways to, to stay in touch with our kids and um, see them through this crisis, them, the kids and their families and their communities. And, but at the end, what, what, I, what I love um, about this group you've put together, Mark, is that, that the common thread sounds to me like, you know, sort of claiming resilience, right? right. What, what are we all doing to... Um, personally see ourselves through this crisis. But then, as you said, you know, Sri encourages us every day. We all jokingly call it the Sreeniverse, right? In the right. Sreeniverse, everybody should do something to to help. And, you know, it, I think that if, if nothing else, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about the work I do because it, it uh, reaches three to 400,000 kids a year. And, you know, it's it's what's getting me through this crisis, being wow. locked in my home. Wow. And that's a, what a lot of people are doing is finding their goal and the different things that they're involved in and things of that nature. Now, earlier today when I was doing my other um, more of a pod stream kind of show because it 
aired on more of a streaming kind of platform, but it's also aired on Monday. I had a young lady from Pakistan, and, you know, with all this going on in the world, the Black Lives Matter, matter well, things that are going on mm-hmm. and the protests that are going on, people forget about the rest of the world and some of the issues that y'all have. Because, like I said, even though I know India and Pakistan have had some of their mm-hmm. own uh, conflicts <laughs> and things of that nature, and she's from Pakistan, but she was talking about how a lot of those Asian countries deal with these kind of issues of child abuse and um, abuse with, because uh, she's a very much of an activist comedian, uh, so dealing mm-hmm. with the fact that women and others are sometimes not treated in the best of ways. But I was just wondering, as you do your work, do you find that sometimes we don't know enough about the kinds of things that are going on in the world? Because that's one of the things that I feel is that sometimes we get stuck in our own little silos, whether that's me here in Dharma, whether that's the East Coast or whatever, and we don't always pay attention to some of these things that are happening and some of them are might even be considered atrocities or definitely abuses in one form or another in these other countries because when i saw some of those figures that you were quoting just for india and the children they are very stark mm-hmm. yeah i mean I, you know what it, it, i think it, it, it goes both ways mark i think that um one one absolute truth that you just stated right is that here in the united states we do tend to um behave like we are the center of the world and, you know, the media plays into that. You know, there, there's very little coverage, right, of things that happen outside of the United States except on certain news channels. But I also think that what that means is that when there is coverage, the, 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 the focus tends to be on the negative. When I can tell you that, you know, there are some extraordinary things happening. I mean, in, India is just one example, but there are extraordinary things happening in the world. Uh, in terms of people helping people, of, you know, government stepping in and taking care of folks. It's, uh, you know, that's the kind of coverage I wish uh, played out more in the United States. But, you know, speaking for myself, I I was born in India, but I grew up here in New Jersey, common enough story, you know. Um, But it didn't occur to me until I was in Doha a couple of years ago. I was at at a health conference in in uh, Qatar and I was only one of five Americans there out of a crowd of I don't know a thousand people and, and one of those uh, one of the other five was Michael Phelps which was kind of hilarious and but what really struck me is that the rest of the world is happening out there on the other side of the ocean and and to the south of our borders and it's really the United States that is an island to a certain degree. And, and that's one of the reasons I actually joined Magic Bus, right? It, it, it's personally important to me. I, you know, I'm, I'm obviously of Indian origin. Um, but even more so, you know, the, the idea that you can take a child and give them the support they need in addition to their regular, you know, reading, writing, and arithmetic and help them break out of poverty for themselves, their family, and for the future generations of their family, this is a model that could work anywhere. And, you know, that's why I'm in it, right, is, is because if, things, if, if models like this can work in places like India and China and Nigeria, right, that comprise the biggest populations in the world, then they can work anywhere. They can work in, you know, rural West Virginia. They can work in, you know, the urban centers of the United States. Wow. You so got a it, good point there. It's really, 
<laughs> so, yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's not just about us or them necessarily, you know. Uh, it, it's really, I hate to, I mean, maybe I shouldn't say this, but it's also about, you know, folks here in the United States uh, claiming a little bit of humility and realizing that good ideas do happen in other parts of the world. Yeah, we do have to have that humility and everything. And by the way, you'll be glad to know. And uh, Dean, I need you to bring in the guests from Charlotte as well. Then we'll get into discussions about all kinds of things because I've had all kinds of thoughts on my mind and everything as I've been listening to different people talk and bring up their subjects. But if you'll bring in the person from Charlotte, Dean. And by the way, uh, uh, you'll be glad to know, Rodney, uh, that Dean is up there in New Jersey now, even though he's a Virginia person, but he works in the correction system right. up there in New Jersey area. So y'all have got that commonality of New Jersey. Once a Jersey mm-hmm. girl, always a Jersey girl, Mark. <laughs> I know that's right. <laughs> All right, give me one second right here. This is the beauty of uh, multiple things, but we got it now. We got Saigon from Charlotte, North Carolina. Welcome to Straight Talk with Dean and Mark. You are now on the line. How are you doing? Mark. We're talking about all kinds hey. of things. You heard things going on. So I just want you to share a little bit about what you've got going on in Charlotte, and then we'll get into a little bit more of the roundtable discussion because I've got some questions about education that I want Lucius to jump in on, and as well as Pradnia because she brought up some good points. But we want to get everybody introduced first before we get into some of the bigger conversations. So tell folks a little bit about yourself. Yeah, well, fo- well, folks, what a pleasure to be on an international call and as the theme has emerged, not just being here in the United States, I'm glad to be on multiple continents. So Mark and I actually have almost a family relation. I know Mark because I worked with his folks in, how I guess, in the, in the 70s, Jim Lee and Valeria Lee. I, I, I am a lifetime civil rights union and community organizer and musician. This is I've been doing it for fifty two years. I'm seventy six years old and grateful to be here. So I started out in the sixties with SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the militant grassroots young people's wing of the Southern Civil Rights Movement. I worked in Forest City, Arkansas, named after the Confederate cavalry leader General Nathan Bedford Forrest, um, one of the most atrocious, racist, and violent members of the Southern upper class who founded the Ku Klux Klan. And I will say that that Forrest City, Arkansas, lived up to its namesake. In some way, that is the turning point in my life, SNCC. It's where I learned what I needed to be in this world in some ways, for me, it is always 1965. It is always Forest City, Arkansas. It is always SNCC. I met um, Mark's folks when I was working with the Amalgamated Clothing and Textile Workers Union on an international campaign against the J.P. Stevens Company now, not regretfully gone, but, but the, at that time the second largest um, textile corporation in the world, and I would escape from Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, where the seven mills and 3,500 workers were located, and I would go to Warrington, North Carolina, to talk on WVSP, Voices Serving People, the only ever 
African-American-controlled rural radio station in the United States, or for that matter, probably anywhere else. And and Jim and Valeria were friends. They were they were coworkers. They were they were inspirations. And it, it, the the station and Mark may want to talk more about it had both extraordinary jazz shows and the Pig Report and the Hog Report and the Wheat Report in the morning because we're serving a rural community. And these days, I've you know I've worked on many many different campaigns. I'm working right now on a campaign in Alaska to stop the world's largest, what would be the world's largest open pit gold and copper mine, working largely with indigenous communities up there. And then I'm spending a lot of my time with artists in their teens and 20s who want to learn how to be a political artist while still making a living in art. So that's that's me. I'm, I'm happy. I'm, I'm here with my best friend of 60 years, my partner and spouse of 40, the, uh, the, the feminist public philosopher Elizabeth Minnick, and uh, enjoying, enjoying FaceTime with our grandkids in Singapore. That sounds wonderful. Sounds like y'all are having a good time over there, just having enjoying stuff, but still being very active and still the great activist that you have always been. I was just wondering, I had well, mentioned this earlier, but what is your take on what's going on when you're seeing the protests that are taking place in the streets now uh, compared to what was happening many years ago? Because like you said, you were involved with SNCC. You were involved with some of the earlier mm-hmm. stuff. Lucius gave his impressions of what he thought of what was happening, but I was just wondering what's your impression of what's going on in the current uh inclination of how things are being done with the protests. I just wanted to hear your words and your feelings of this current uh, crop of protests that are coming up, going global, because I think these are some of the most global protests that I've seen in a long time. I mean, some people might say Brexit was very global, but I would even argue that this might even be more global than Brexit was. <laughs> Mark, I believe what's happening today under the leadership of very young people, and I'm talking not just about People in their late 12-year-olds, 10-year-olds, I think it's the most profound hope we have for saving the world. I find it inspiring. I find it intellectually interesting. I think there is a vision, a democratic vision that touches on all the issues that and, – and, you know, in, in the 1960s, there, there were – I'm white. I'm Jewish. There was a handful of white people who – were in SNCC. It was a, a African American, black controlled and led organization. But we were, in that sense, a small minority. Today, I look at at areas that were that were clan strongholds. Not not even that long ago, places in Texas, Louisiana, were young whites and young blacks and young Latinx people. You know, of of all kinds. You know. Gay, straight, trans, you name it, are coming forward with a vision that is like the vision that Snick had, that is like the vision of the revolutionaries, if we go back to Denmark, Vizi, if we go back to, you know, to, to all of the extraordinary leaders, the W.B. Du Bois, all the people who had a vision of a decent society. So I am deeply hopeful. Sounds and wonderful. I, and Sad, do you think do you, you think people are rediscovering yeah. your music 
because uh, I know that sometimes when <laughs> other revolutions would happen, people would discover, rediscover Gil Scott Heron because of what was going on. Do you think people are rediscovering your music because it's very folk-oriented, but it's also very message-oriented? So I was just wondering, do you feel that people of that young generation are rediscovering your sound? And um, I also wanted to hear from Brevin if he's involved with any lyricists that are adding some of that folk kind of sound or some of that message. Because a lot of times jazz is more instrumental, so we don't always hear the mm-hmm. lyrics of the message, even though one of the greatest jazz songs, in my mind, is Strange Fruits, which is definitely a message song. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I, I think this is an ironic way to put it. I think young people are rediscovering their own music. And I would much rather have them create their own music and make that the anthems of this movement that have been go back to my movement. I don't I don't know that this being rediscovered and now I, I will say that part of what I see as my role is letting people know about historic music. For example, in the last few days I've been working on a project not my project, but just as a volunteer, helping someone who's writing a book about the song I Dreamed I Saw Joe Hill last night, which is a movement anthem I'm surveying political artists to say, how do you use this song strategically? Not just how do you sing it, but how do you use the song to help create social change? And, and I think that's, that's, that's the role I want to play. Um, I also, the other thing is, because Mark, you know the folk side of my music. I, I also write for musical theater, which stylistically very, very different. And, and uh, that's a great way. I have a, a musical called Mother Jones in Heaven. It's, it's uh, it, up until the, we all locked down. It was pouring the country in a 32-foot RV. It's in, it, it's in a streamed performance from the home of Vivian Nesbitt and John Dillon, who were the, the couple who were promoting it. It's had 13,000 people have watched the show in the last two days. We don't even understand why they should be that broad reach. But, you know, Mother Jones, the most dangerous woman in America, I think it's so important that we know there are precedents to what's going on today and what we can learn from their strategies and their tactics. Definitely. You have to learn from the past and everything. Uh, Brevin, uh, share a little bit about uh, your music. And uh, I don't know, have you dealt with any of the music that would be considered uh, more the protest-oriented music or just the more traditional jazz? And also, I'm just curious, um, again, this is going to come back to one of the questions to even bring in with Prime as well, is um, do you think that jazz is taught enough? Because I think that we need to teach music more in general and creative studies in more in general, just in our American school system. Cause I don't know that sometimes I think we shame teach too much to the test, but that's just my own personal bias. And I've actually worked sometimes with a test company. So I was just wondering some of your thoughts about how we're doing in terms of teaching music and how you feel the popularity of jazz is as you're a jazz musician. Okay. Um, I think, let me start with your first question about protest music. So honestly, uh, it's actually interesting that you would ask because two of the artists that I've been making a lot of music with in the last couple of years, Ben Williams and Phil Cook, Ben is based in New York. He's a bass player and songwriter. And uh, he just came out with a project called I Am a Man, which if any of you remember that that was like Mm -hmm. part of, it was the picket that the, the, 
how can you say the sign that was up when um during MLK when when um they were going for workers' rights. Um and so the, he he just did a whole project on that that's basically a lot of protest music on there. And then Phil actually has a very similar you know, songs of his. He has one that he wrote, I remember in like 2014 or so that um that we played on his from his first record Southland Mission called Great Tide and it was basically uh a kind of a protest song against our former governor Pat McCrory after uh a lot of um unfortunate bills were 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 being passed so of late within the last like 5 years um and I mean you know, if you're asking me personally, I think, you know, if there's anything that a, a Trump's America will bring you, it will bring you protest songs about how people are unhappy. So, um, you know, there's that. As far as jazz education of late, and it's interesting because, you know, of late there have been a lot of conversations. I think one of the largest problems, especially when you talk about higher education, like uh, like at the university level, is that there's a lack of black representation in a lot of the upper echelon jazz programs. And um, I think uh, just nationwide, right? It's like when you go to some of the – I'm sorry? No, go ahead. What were you saying? Uh, I was saying uh, when you go around to some of the more like – accredited schools like the Manhattan schools of music and, and, but even at any like particularly predominantly white institution, you'll find that they have jazz programs, yet they lack jazz faculty (laughs) and uh, they lack black faculty. Excuse me. So it's, it's, I find it very, uh, I don't know. It's, it's just difficult, you know, and so, I mean, as far as, like, jazz being taught and learned today, um, of course, at the elementary and secondary school level, of course, it always needs more support and more opportunity. You know, most most states, well, state and federal, spend a lot of time, you know, the first thing they take away from is arts programs. So, you know, the minute that they slash a budget in an elementary school or a middle school or a high school in an arts program, the first thing that gets slashed is what people feel like is extra. And a lot of times jazz, you know, they have a separate jazz band instructor from the regular music instructor. They slash the budget. The first person to go is the jazz guy, right? Because he's not the necessarily the guy dealing there all the time. So, I mean, unfortunately, you know, and this can go with a bigger conversation is that, um, you know, jazz, you can look at the just the statistics. It's it's only about, you know, 2% of the global market. So, you know, when you talk about, but particularly in the United States, when you talk about, you know, something that is considered, you know, America's true art forms, you know, yes, there's always a lack of support. It it tends to be a little bit baffling um, as so as to why it gets so short shortchanged. And the only thing I can come to think of it is that you know, from what I know about this country, money talks. <laughs> so if they feel like that, it, or whoever's in control of the situation feels like 
<laughs> that jazz doesn't make money, then, you know, the question becomes why fund it? Right. You know, and, it, and, uh, and uh, that Lucius, just happens I'm over and over. Yeah, and Lucius, I'm hoping you're still on the line, but I want you to talk about that because you actually represented some of the first crossover films of some of our Latin brothers and even some people that are, I believe, French and Asian. So how did you make that crossover? And I mean, this was many years ago, and do you think you would have that same kind of luck now because you definitely promoted some serious international films around the country and around the world. But I was just wondering, do you think that you would have the same kind of luck do promoting in the 21st century that you did when you were breaking these films? Well, we have lots more communications channels. And by channels, I mean that we have thousands and thousands of people communicating on things they've seen and heard on music and on film and giving tips to their friends. And it's not just tuning into Netflix or Amazon streaming and finding a thousand titles or 10,000 titles to look through and decide what you want to watch. It's having all sorts of crosstalk among people who are themselves storytellers about things they've seen that they want to recommend to their friends. So the way we communicate used to be to go to a big film festival and have a big, uh, hopefully a place in competition and maybe win a prize and gain recognition in those ways and stoke prestige. But for instance, Pedro Almodovar had made five, four films before he made Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown in 1988. And that film, even as though there were many people in the world who knew who he was, Almodovar was refused at Berlin in February and was not granted a place at the Cannes Film Festival in May. So we had the premiere of that film was in the market at Cannes. 300 people, many of whom had already been distributing his films mm-hmm. in Australia and Italy and France and Germany and all the key territories, UK, uh, and including the States, it came to a party afterwards with 300 people. But somehow that spark that had been lit years earlier, uh, let's say 78, I had a first conversation about Pedro Andover with a sales agent, who was also, by the way, the associate producer of David Lynch's Eraserhead, so someone who had his eye on the ball when it came to discovering new talent and spark and, and supporting people who are storytellers who will take us in new pl- to new places. Well, it took those years to establish a base of understanding and recognition a base of people who would celebrate, but then it was only the spark after so many years. It's, it's a classic in many industries where you have to write 10 scripts or write mm-hmm. five books before you get to be a bestseller writer. So I, uh, I, it's Mary, isn't it, from Australia? Mighty. Mamie? From Australia? Yes, yeah, the lady from Australia. Are you still there with us? Yeah. She's, yes, I'm so, still here. Yes. To have a bestseller yeah. come in like wildfire in your first, and that was your first book, or you had others before that? Uh, it's my first book that I actually had the guts to publish, so there you go. Ah, ah. there you go. Because dovetailing with this point about, uh, about education, I think that what we must do in this terrain of digital communications where so many people have a platform and so many people can reach so many others to tell their stories, we have to teach everyone to have confidence in their own personal powers of creation, have confidence in the fact that they can create stories that will be of interest to other people out there. Because guess what? If there are a thousand people telling stories, there are 10,000 people listening and each of those could be inspired to tell a thousand stories themselves, you see. So it's exponentially a very different market that we used to have where we used to depend on a couple of key journalists or a couple of key buyers and a couple of key countries. If the film was a hit in France, maybe someone in another country would be interested, but maybe not. But now we have so many ways of communicating that we should all recognize our own power of 
creation. And by the way, by creation, I mean creating a story or creating buzz about a story, sparking interest in the mm-hmm. story. Yep, and, and I, 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 was rural, I was wondering. Rural radio, like Mark, your, your parents were running this rural station. Well, right now that rural station, just as you, are global. <laughs> Right, yeah, exactly. They were running that back in the seventies, and they were running that in the seventies, and it was not well. We considered it somewhat global, but definitely what we're doing here is definitely a global thing. As you notice, I've got but people in uh, all over the world, the and same. you're listening and being guests. So definitely, we but see this as a world same. platform. It's the same thing, and you learn welcome to your parents because it's the same thing. There's no difference between local and global. Yeah, it's interesting you said that because that's actually a conversation that I've been having with um, another radio station that I am part of. It's our uh, low-power radio station. But they, as a low-power radio station, some of the people at the radio station want to just focus on the local while some of the other members are like, wait a minute, we might be local, but we're also mm-hmm. on the Internet, which means that we're global and right. are pushing more of the global aspect, whereas there are some people within the station that want to just push the local market. And I get that, that they just want to push the advertisers and some of the others. Well, it's a low power, so it's not really a commercial exactly. station, but they want to publish you're right. the... Uh, you're right, because, in fact, the mission of radio is to provide companionship for people who don't feel they're part of a community. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. That's like that is correct. classic BBC, BBC policy is to make sure that people of the prairie home, prairie home companion. I mean, you're out in the middle of nowhere and you feel that you're yeah. alone there. You're you're connected. You're connected even to the Stardust mm-hmm. Ballroom in Chicago in the early days of radio. So that's still one of the one of the, the missions. But that's I think still reporting on local crop crop prices and all sorts of uh, and weather conditions is still part of a local city, but there's, there's room for both agendas inside one and one, one operation, I think. Yeah. Yeah, but I agree with you. I think there's rooms for both agendas, and I think that that's the direction that we're going in and everything. Now, I'm wondering here, from, definitely from Brevin, but also from you, Lucius, because uh, you brought it up. Sometimes with all of this mediums that we have, it seems like sometimes it's too much stuff out there, and it's, it sometimes sometimes you feel like you're overwhelmed by the amount of stuff out there, and sometimes it's not all – I mean, yes, I want everybody to create, but some of the stuff that's created – isn't all that great sometimes, let's be honest. So I'm just wondering, right. do you ever feel that sometimes <laughs> is a little bit of an oversaturation? Totally. I do. I don't know about, how about everyone else? I want to hear from others about that. When you say oversaturation, you just mean of art in general? Or, like, or like I'm, I guess I'm not understanding, like, the specific like an oversaturation, thing you're like, to Because everybody has a camera. Everybody has access to music equipment on their computer, everybody feels that they can make music, oh. and not everybody is a great musician, and not everybody is going to make the great <laughs> film. So that kind of oversaturation, people, they have the equipment to do it, therefore they try to do it, and I sometimes wonder if that creates an oversaturation, because then you yeah. have to weed through some of the bad stuff in order to get to the classic stuff. You're right. Yeah, so definitely. This is I, my, yeah, I, I, I think it's always been that way, and, and you know, there, there's more access. But, you know, 50 years ago, you could go to, you know, a black bar or white bar and listen to a band that was truly terrible because people were dancing to it and people were drinking and having a good time. You know, there's always been a huge continuum from the amateur musicians who are who are enjoying it and feel good about it and, you know, their parents are so proud of them all the way up to the, some of the people that you guys have played with. So I, I, I don't 
I don't think it's as different as we may think it is. The difference is if you're sitting down and say, what am I going to listen to? It's not just your LP collection, right? It's not just your eight tracks. I'm waiting for the eight tracks to come back. So I think that is the difference. But that's also a question of, of how we make choices. And, you know, some people choose to spend their entire time watching Fox News. I'm not going to name any names here. Hey, but I, well, well, I've got, well, I got the floor. So you, you mentioned our former governor, Pat McCrory. Right. He was also the former mayor of Charlotte, and who, and actually, while he was a terrible governor, he was a pretty good mayor. But but the, the issue wow. that, um, that we're talking about, it was something called for for those of you in Australia and India, maybe you missed this. There was our, our Neanderthal legislature came up with something called HB two. That's House Bill oh, two. It, yeah, it's called the bathroom bill. Um, and and so so. It basically said you had to use the bathroom corresponding to the sex you were assigned on your birth certificate, which is a slap in the face to every trans person right. everywhere, right? So, and, and exactly. I, I, you know, I think Mark, you used the term protest music. You know, when, when, when I'm out doing a radio interview, but somebody says, you're a protest singer. I said, well, no, actually, I'm mostly for stuff, you know? And I, and I think right. to be a, polit- a political singer, is to refuse self-censorship. So the censors need their jobs. Don't 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 do their work for them. So and I think that I, I have a very very broad understanding of what it means to be a political musician. If you are a jazz musician and there are no vocals whatsoever, if you have, if you you know have a street team and a papers in the street and it says after the demonstration free jazz concert in the park, that's a political act. And and so mm-hmm. that's one of the lessons I try. Anyway, so when it, out of this bathroom bill, so a friend of mine and I made a series of videos. We, I wrote the songs. They're all parodies, you know, to existing things. Um, and it was called the Note to HB2 VP EP Video Suite. You can still find it online. But one of my favorites was the bad old hymn of the Republicans and, uh, and the chorus. Uh, the bad old hymn of the Republicans, right? And and um, just in case people in other countries don't know, the the battle hymn of the Republic was a very famous Civil War song on the correct side, and the, and the chorus was "Glory, Glory, Pat McCrory." It's up there on the web; you can find it. And, and just lastly, I th- I think that the essence, one of the the, the one of the ways you can make. Political music most effective is the use of humor. Its humor can be absolutely devastating. So I have a song called Government on Horseback. And the, the video, which is online, um, you know, you, you see our president. I'm not going to say his name, and I'm not even calling him our president, whatever the hell he is. But um, you see him patting Putin's knee and patting, you know, the, the crew wow. and the dictator's knee. But it's, it's sarcastic. And it and, and, and it stings, <laughs> but it makes a point. And I and I, and lastly, I also think that that one political musician once asked me, "Why am I not more popular?" Mike, I said, "It's because you're all all your songs are depressing. You know, they're all wow. against this." I said, "Do you know any love songs?" And this person said, "No, I don't." I said, "Go forth and write some love songs." And you know, so I, <laughs> I think that to be a political musician is to write about the whole of life. Right, love songs and funny songs and story songs and songs that make fun of those in power and songs that attack them viciously. 
but it has to be a mix. It can't be only one thing. Right. Yeah, definitely. And I was wondering, um, up to all I, of you, how do you feel it is using uh, your social media platforms? And I'll talk with you, Pratnia, because, like I said, we know that certain people seem to use them quite advocately and quite um, viciously in some ways. But just in your own uh, work and your activism, how important is it for you to use your social media? Do you have a heavy social media presence on with Magic Bus? And how do you manage to use your social media in that respect? And how do you not get caught in the rush of social media because that's another thing that can have a lot of uh, rushes that you don't that you want to get your message out but at the same time you don't want to get buried in the messages of others well for me it's, it's incredibly important to keep you know sort of the messages i'm putting out there for magic bus quite separate from uh my personal communications right so anyone who knows me in my personal life knows that i am a bleeding heart liberal um <laughs> You know, it's it's not it's not a surprise to anybody, but I have to sort of you know put that aside a little bit when we're talking about, um, and this is true of anybody, but but specifically when we're talking about an international organization that relies you know on on funding and on the support of of a a, a variety of stakeholders, right, both in India and the UK and the United States. And, you know, not everybody feels the same way as I do about our current administration or the current administration in India. So, you know, I, I, I tread lightly, I guess, is, is the best way I can put it. Um, but I think that, you know, social media in general is, 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 a, is a fantastic tool. Um, but I do think, again, you know, back to your question about are we oversaturated, right? I think that it's really easy to get lost in your own bubble of people who agree with you, right, on social media. And so, you know, sometimes we have to work really hard to, to, to stay balanced in how we are consuming information. And that actually raises a question, because like I said, I know that you're here in America and have been here in America for a number of years and everything, mm-hmm. but when I've got a friend from Brazil, and they actually tell me that, um, we talk junk about that person with the orange hair up there in D.C., but they say there's some world leaders that are just as bad, if not worse. And you kind of implied that with your conversation about the Indian leader, so I don't know if he's as bad or worse, but I'm sitting there going like, and I don't think that we know that because sometimes we're so busy caught up in that bubble of just what's going on in our world that we don't know who some of the other uh, really bad leaders are or some of the other good leaders because there are probably some great leaders in some of these other countries as well, including some leaders of uh, – some countries that are led by women and some countries just led by some great folks in general. But I just don't know that we actually are aware of what's going on around the world. And as I mentioned to a friend of mine on another platform, I don't even know that enough people know the constitution. Well, I mean, it goes back to what you were saying before, right? About, about the United States being isolated to a certain degree. Right. And I mean, uh, you know, a a new uh, friend slash colleague of mine at magic bus, you know, bright, bright guy um, who does our program design. He wakes up every morning in Mumbai and watches Fox News to see what kind of, you know, dare I say it, idiotic thing our current administration has done the night before. And that's his daily entertainment, right? So he, he, he keeps his finger on the pulse and entertains himself by watching Fox News in India. And well, I don't think that, amazing. you know, most people here would be able to say that, right? I mean, we're not 
and even for myself, I was in my American bubble for a long time, and having taken this job where 99% of the work happens overseas, um, I've had to learn something now about Indian politics. I've had to learn something about, you know, the, the, the state of the economy. I mean, I've had to, you know, even though I was born there, I now have to teach myself you know, how to re-engage on a day-to-day basis in another country, even the one that I happen to be born in. Wow. What are some of the things, and this is for all of you, because all of you have, I think even you, Reverend, have traveled the world and everything. What are some of the things that you think that people that are listening now, they might not have traveled the world? And I'm going to admit it, even though my parents had that great background, and I appreciate that endorsement that you gave them and everything, and definitely they did some amazing things, and still continue to do amazing things. My dad is a great artist and everything, but one of my uh, guilt, and I think I've even mentioned this on the show with Sri and everything, is that I've not done enough world traveling. I went with a friend two years ago on a cruise, and that was to the Virgin Islands, uh, Puerto Rico, and the Grand Turks. And before that, it was when I was a baby, and I lived in Turkey. So I've not got a, a chance to see enough of the world. Need to do a better job of that. So just in general, well, Mark, what are some of the things? If you want to go to India, you let me know. I will definitely let you know. I've been invited by the comedian earlier today to Pakistan, so maybe I'll hit both of them at the same time. I just got to figure out how to get mm-hmm. the capital because none of these trips are like cheap. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> right. Honestly, but I what, feel like one of the first things I learned, like from traveling, uh, was like about food and food consumption and like diet type things and how different that looks in other countries. Um, and, like, to be to be frank with you, <laughs> like, it made me look at my own country like, man, we, we got some work to do. <laughs> Just because, you know, of, of, of the way food is handled in other countries, the, you know, what's, what's being put in, into, you know, essentially products that we're putting into our bodies. Um, that was like a real eye opener. Like especially when I traveled through Europe, I've, I've been a, I've I played some with um, Brentford Marsalis' pianist Joey Calderazzo. I did some touring with him, and uh, we we ended up in Italy. And I was like, my mind was blown at like, you know, just how fresh things were. You know, uh, even just you know portions and and things like that, and just you know, the way, you know, it's, it's, hey, I mean, it, 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 goes. it totally changed everything. Yeah. Hey, so this is, uh, so what, one of the great gifts in my life was being able to work with musicians in other countries and to mm-hmm. tour with them. I mean, sort of building on what you said, because if you, if you go as a tourist, it's very difficult to get a real sense of a place, but, you know, having, Having recorded with the German bluegrass band and toured Europe with them, recorded in Switzerland with a Swiss band, um, it, having been you know toured England with with a very political set of artists, and and so I get you know so instead of you know it's it's totally cool to see the Tower of London, but you know one of my favorite nights was in a an anarchist club in Reading, England, with you know all these eighteen year old people dressed all in black. No way. I would have seen it, or to be the guest of unemployed coal miners in the north of England. I, I, I think that, you know, because, because all of us have the kind of access 
that we could go to a country as the guest of someone who is politically involved, who is artistically involved, who is socially involved. That's what that's when you really get a sense of the differences. That has just been a great gift to me. Well, and what about you, Mr. Barr? You've been all over the world. I mean, you've traveled to cons and different other places. What are some of the uh, great well, lessons that you've learned in your career? I, as I mentioned, I was born in Brooklyn, so I grew up in New York, and lots of people from all around the world come here either to visit or to live. And we have a lot of interaction with people that we might just meet in cafes or restaurants and talk to people on the subway or find out where people are from and welcome them to our city. So there's a lot of first exchange to recognize that people are usually open and friendly when they come traveling. And anyone who has traveled knows that it's about reaffirming universal friendship and cooperation. And I want to go back, though, to the other point of what, what happens when people tell stories in their own village or in their own country. It's not as though it's a challenge to sell a good story if it's well told, because we've been spoiled by having world-class storytellers, world-class jazz musicians. But let's not forget that our grandparents made music at home, and our grandparents right. lived in a world where there was, there was no radio, and people learned to play the spoons, if nothing else. It wasn't until, you know, it wasn't until like 1835 that the first prototype of a steel frame piano was invented. And it wasn't until 1860 that the pianos came on the market as something every family could have or every community could invest in having a piano somewhere in town. And with that, we had a w- big expansion. And what, as a child, I grew up, I'm, by the way, a few years behind you, Sai, um, in 71. Uh, we, I grew up with my grandparents playing music from sheet music, that you'd go in and buy a sheet mm-hmm. of this music or that music and play it at home. So it's about creating your own stories again. And as I was mentioning earlier, nice. we should encourage that because that's the root of folk music, but it's also the root of all music. It's the root of sharing. When one person sits next to the other and tells a story, you can tell a story with words or music. And I count the same as uh, the world I'm in in film is telling stories in that way, just sitting beside someone and telling a story that comes from either some wild adventure or some small experience. So the world of travel, the world of travel is, 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 is quite accessible to us right now if you want to go out to it you know, and look for it. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, if I can jump in here with a different view on the travel thing coming from Australia. Uh, obviously, for us to travel to you guys, it's not an easy feat for us. However, one of the things that came prominent for me in the last couple of years uh, were both my parents. I lost my mum last year. Uh, my father died when he was 54. Uh, 22 years ago and never got to travel to where he wanted to in life and then just last year two days before my mother died she grabbed my hand and told me that the only thing she ever wanted to do with her life was to see the Grand Canyon and she never got there because she didn't believe that she could Um, so here's two people that are very close to me that passed before they got to do what they truly wanted to do in life because of the lack of self-belief and that lack of self-worth and confidence because they really didn't think that they could make it happen. And so I think this has really uh, been a big kick for me. Uh, uh, being nearly 48, I've done some traveling, not like you, not nearly enough. Um, so I was actually supposed to be in New York in May and London and Paris. But of course, you know, with what's happening, I've got uh, sort of like stopped doing that. But I think it's important that people, you know, realize that the only thing that's holding them back from doing anything in their lives 
traveling or anything else is that their own minds and their own mindsets. Life's too short. Oh, seriously. absolutely. Really absolutely. I agree 150%. Absolutely. Along the same lines, I was just wondering, we oftentimes hear in America about the good parts and maybe some of the bad parts as well of our education system. Uh, Revan even touched on some of that. But do you think that as a global community, we're doing enough in education? I mean, part of what you're doing, probably is trying to get people broken away from some boundaries in India. We know that India, for having all of the many people, and definitely is known for having a certain upper class, but it's also a stark society in the sense that I don't even know what the percentages are, but I know that there's a large underclass as well in, in India, while there is a stark um, upper class uh, in terms of, like, the percentages. I don't know whether y'all have the same kind of uh, things that were going on in Occupy in terms of the percentages, but I do know that there is a stark underclass in India, So, and that's part of what Magic Bus is trying to do is get people out of those situations so they can get more uh, employment and get a step up versus just kind of like being in the bottom, which people know from, there was a popular movie a few years back that touched a, a little bit on India's history with that. So I'm trying to think of the title of that movie. It's a very popular, Slumlord Millionaire. Slumdark Millionaire. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Slumdark Millionaire, yeah. Yeah, that was, that was um, an interesting movie. You know, I, I think it's interesting uh, because it did not the, depict India as it stands today. It was made by British people who had a very Disney-fied world, world view of India, wasn't it? Wouldn't you say? Thank you for saying what I what I hesitated to say. Absolutely. Oh no, because I, I was think, that I, same year I, working, I working with an Indian filmmaker, so, and I know many yeah. people who were embarrassed. I knew many Indian filmmakers, and many people in the community were embarrassed by Slumdog Millionaire. So let's be clear about that. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I want to say, Elizabeth, that we thought it was stone racist, appallingly racist, with a yeah, colonialist, yeah. white imperialist view, and I, I don't think it should. I, I was. I think it should not even have been distributed. It's disgusting. It's sort of, it was sort of an Indian birth of the nation. Yeah, yeah. I never, <laughs> after hearing from it, yeah, I, I was doing a, working on a film by Nandita Das called Tirak, which is about the Muslim and Hindu race wars in India and mm, the pain mm. of seeing people slitting each other's throats in the same street where they lived all their lives cousins who thought they were cousins but were actually different religions and were killing each other so when she saw the film and told me that it's something that she was really embarrassed by I never went to see it so I can't speak about it except to say that I know that every single person I know of in India is embarrassed by it yeah, yeah. well the, the, the other I mean it's not but I tell you, is the it, when it won the uh, was it an academy award that it won um, yeah you know, it became this sort of, uh, I don't know how to say it exactly, but, you know, it, it, it became acceptable to walk up to any random Indian person and congratulate them on the success of the film. Yeah. And, you know, all you can do at that point is sort of blink and smile and say, yep, that was an interesting movie. <laughs> Very difficult. You probably had to go through that a little bit, even in more current times, because I don't. I have friends of all kinds of diversities and all kinds of groups, whether it's orientations, um, genders, and ethnicities, and everything. And I do know that when certain people called it the Asian flu or the China flu or whatever else, 
there mm-hmm. was, I mean, yes, there was a lot of the Indian community has come, like that gentleman, to the aid of the Black Lives Matter and everything. But there was a lot of society, and I will even say some of my own society as well, that tried to make stereotypes about the Asian community based on the fact that they thought that that's where everything came from and wanted to make these kind of stark stereotypes. So I think that those stereotypes exist throughout society, and that is one that we have to work on fighting is, fighting the stereotypes even within our own society and even among other fellow minority groups. Yeah, Mark, I, I want to go back to your question about education because I yes. think one of the reason one of the reasons that the demonstrations are the way they are is because of the changes in education in the last 20, 30, 40 years that we have black studies, we have feminist studies, we have queer studies. We have Asian studies. We have Jewish studies. And so people learned. The, the generation that is out on the streets have taken courses that are not necessarily about themselves, and they've learned black history. So an understanding of black history is necessary to really – I mean, you could be appalled by George Floyd and the other murders and know nothing of black history. But if you know at least something of black history, regardless of what your race or ethnicity is, you understand that this is not isolated, that this is a, a 401-year-old pattern. And that, that increases both your understanding, but it also increases your rage. And rage is very useful at a time like this. So I think that, that we should – and the growth of community colleges that in the United States has made you know, um, education accessible to people for whom it would never have been accessible before – now, this is all under assault by the corporations that are trying to take over education, by the privatizing corporations. But I've, education is critical to to inform the rebellion. I would definitely agree with that. Uh, Pradeer, just out of curiosity, what are some of the uh, – we're talking about stereotypes with travel, but what are some of the stereotypes that you think exist about the Asian and the Indian community? Because I'm imagining Magic Bus, that's part of what you have to do is not just educate the kids that you're helping, but also educate the greater community when you're trying to get funding for the program that you're doing. So what is, when you go to corporations and some of the things, what are some of the great stereotypes that you have to fight against? Um, you know, I think that those conversations – strange to say are are not they exist in a very business framework right so you know at the end of the day the folks that are representing corporations that are generous they're thinking about meeting their goals while doing something to be helpful um, to you know for the kids that we serve in India um, I mean I can, I can tell you though in my personal life uh, you know, I can tell you that I am not good at math. I have never been in a spelling bee, and uh, <laughs> and I am. <laughs> and you know, if you were to ask me uh, most things about, you know, well, let's put it this way: I learned how to make Italian food before I learned to cook Indian food because I grew up in Bloomfield, New Jersey, and <laughs> you know, all of my friends were were Italian Catholic and their moms taught me, you know, a good lasagna before I, I taught myself chicken curry. So, you know, I think that it's, it, it, you know, I mean, I'm making jokes, but what it really is about is understanding the difference, all of us, right, in, in how you approach someone authentically 
and are interested in who they are and what they have to say and not make assumptions based on what they look like or what they're wearing or, you know, assume that their name uh, puts them in a certain community. And, and I think that's where we all, to a certain degree, fall down, right? I mean, a person who walks up to me the morning after there's a Bollywood, you know, performance on So You Think You Can Dance, they're not trying to, to express a microaggression, but that's what they're doing by assuming that somehow, one, I saw So You Think You Can Dance, and, uh, and that the only way they have to relate to me is through mainstream representations of of how they understand Indian culture to be. Gotcha. So, so wait a minute. Then I'm gonna get to the Australian stereotypes as well. So, you mean to tell me that you <laughs> that if my computer breaks, I can't call on you to give me some help? Give me the. I, I thought that like I can't call on you to help me with the computer. Me and Dee, we're already gonna call all of you later on today. Yeah, my brother. Right, my brother actually studied IT. And, and you <laughs> know, he, yeah, no, he's, he's, he's very serious about this. He actually owns a T-shirt that says, no, I cannot fix your computer. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. That's a good point. So uh, what are some of the stereotypes that you think that exist about Australia? And I agree with Pradnia. You have this positive attitude, and that's a wonderful thing to have in this day and time that we're in and everything. But there are stereotypes about Australia as well. So what are some of the stereotypes that you feel folks have about Australia when they find out that you are Australian to my Australian author? Okay, so I think that um, Australians are sort of still looked at as, uh, backwards, I suppose. Uh, I think a lot of the world still believes that we have kangaroos jumping down the main street. Uh, I can remember actually being in Canada many, many moons ago and was actually asked by somebody if we had escalators in, in our malls and stuff like this. And I remember telling the gentleman that, no, we used to get on the backs of kangaroos and got them to jump really, really high so it could go from floor to floor. Uh, <laughs> Wow. I think that I think a lot of the world a lot of the world forgets that we're here because we are so far away, and I really think that there's still a lot of like you know stereotyping of the Australians just being crass, perhaps, uh, maybe just you know like, well, I guess get a lower society in a way, really. Yeah, yeah, I think that is kind of a stereotype that people have of, of Australia. Now, I'm going to tell you, I and I've mentioned this on the show before, Dean will remember this story that I'm about to tell because I've told it a couple of times, but um, the country next to y'all, and that's the other country that's far away, I am actually a person that plays words with friends, and I um, have not played in a couple of days now, but I, there was a time frame that I was playing all the time, playing that crosswords-like puzzle game. And I'm not that good. I mean, I'm a journalist by trade, but I still don't know as many big words as I should. So I probably got like a 40% victory rate or something like that. So I'm not the best person in terms of being successful. But I like the game. I play, try to come up with some words. There was this one uh, young woman, like in her 20s. And like I said, I'm in my late 50s. And she was literally, I'm just going to be blunt, she was kicking my ass every day. And I could not figure out why she was kicking my ass because she was all of about – I think 22 or 23 or 24, and I'm sitting there like, why, you know, side, uh, side knows my family. I'm like, 
I think my parents trained me pretty well. I think that I they could let me go to Marquette, a good university. I think that I should be able to handle a 23-year-old. And, you know, I'm also, as you can tell from this show, one that loves to talk to people and get to know about them. So I got to talking to her. It turns out that she was the crosswords editor for one of the papers in New Zealand. So I just feel as bad getting oh, wow. kicked in the ass by a 22-year-old who happens to be the crosswords editor for a paper in New Zealand. In other words, she's supposed to know big words. <laughs> Right. That's Absolutely, a, that's a great yeah. Story. Yeah. It is. I was actually born in New Zealand, by the way, so I am actually a Kiwi, but uh, I live across the uh, I live across the ditch, as we call it. So. <laughs> so you were actually born in New Zealand and escaped to Australia. And the only other thing that I know that people think of Australia, but some people, and it's more the politically motivated people, they know the. Um, I guess the similarity between the histories, meaning that I think both Australia and America were settled, if you want to call them settled, because there were actually Native Americans here already, and I know that there were already Natives in Australia. So they were settled by European Americans, and many of those European Americans were prisoners. So that's the only thing that I do uh, know that I think is the similarity, if I, if I know my history right. Yes, yes, that's right. Uh, uh, the same situation, and yes, the Aborigines were here uh, when uh, the you know the Europeans settled here. And yes, we've had a lot of issues over here with our Aboriginal people as well, as far as ill treatment and uh, stuff like that. Probably not to the point that you have over there in America, um, but it definitely still is a problem here. And there's been a lot of work done by the government here to recognise the mistakes of the previous generations as well so well it's interesting you to bring that up because i was watching and i don't think it was shree show i think it was somebody else that i was watching but it was a, another show and it might have been trees but i was watching and oh i know what it was it was another ibm show and there was somebody i believe from australia and i did not realize that there has been equally as many if not maybe a little bit more killings of um, ethnic people by the Australian police as there have been by the police here in America. But somebody brought up some figures that were starkly similar. Like there, I think there was like 300 and something here and maybe 400 and something there in Australia. But see, I wasn't aware of that until I was watching this other program and they were like, nope, not just happening in America. People that are brown and black are getting killed by law enforcement in other parts of the world as well. And they use Australia as an example. Yes, I, I, I do, do tend to agree with that. However, it's interesting that, uh, and this, this may cause a bit of controversy, it's interesting that uh, you mentioned that because I was actually just uh, having lunch with a girlfriend of mine yesterday who used to be a part of the Australian police force. And, you know, not that we want to, like, you know, say anything that's going to lessen what's going on for you guys over there at the moment. Uh, because that's absolutely not our our purpose or, or our desire to do that because, you know, it, it, it all matters. But she was actually telling me that there there are probably just as many in Australia of, you know, white people that are hurt by the police as well. Do you know, it's not just, you know, the the, the Aborigines over here in Australia. It's, it's, she says it's probably pretty much equal, but you don't hear about it as much. That's the thing. So these kind of abuses are going on around the world and that comes back to like what Friday was talking about, that we got to stay out of these silos and actually try to learn more of our society. And I think a lot of that lays on our education system and 
like I said before, I sometimes think that we get too caught up in the testing system and things of that nature. Um, Lucius, if you're still there with us, if, what advice, yes. if you were able to give advice to people about our education system or just the U.S. in general, and like I said, both you and Sarah are of the same generation, but if you were to give advice to the current, well, the generation coming up about things that you would like to see them work on and improve, what are some of the things that you would love to see changed in our modern society? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the first subject that's been dropped from university curriculums is the study of archaeology um, to take people mm-hmm. to imagine life as far as possible away from the current situation and recognize where humanity had its traces, where the traces of humanity can be found five, ten, twenty thousand 20,000 years ago. I was in a, a visiting Rome, and, the, and an old man came up to me and said, what are you doing here in Rome? I said, I'm looking at antiquity. He said, well, then you should go to the pyramids. This is not antiquity. What are you talking about? You know? <laughs> so uh, I think the, 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 the whole of our education system is actually very, very contemporary and very, very much uh, examining under a microscope everything that's going on in our lives. But I think the most ex- the expansive view of humanity would be an asset to our understanding of who we are, and it would inspire us to another generation of creative, create creative energies that are all, again, to be individualized. I'm a very big believer in individual action, and individual action begins with every single person who wants to uh, uh, create a, a channel or creates a, a story, and as Miney did, writes a book, and let that book go out into the world and inspire other people to do the same. Not just that the book is useful, not just the book that changes lives and has tremendous social value, but they people recognize that and feel that they can do the same or they can do something else. Because, again, when we're dealing with fear, uh, the, the biggest counter to fear is to instill confidence in your own personal powers of creation, getting finding a way forward. Mm-hmm. Yep, I would definitely agree with that. And I also, also sometimes wonder if we haven't let, and I was curious to all of y'all thoughts, including you, Brevin, if we haven't sometimes let some of the other basic courses, not just the music, which you talk about, and I agree we need to go back to archaeology and some of the basic things, even of civics and things of that nature, because I know I've got a good friend that's really about us trying to learn more about civics. But I would even argue some of the basic courses. Like when I was coming up, I remember that you could have courses in, and it wasn't just women taking it, in home economics and in auto mechanics, and it wasn't just the guys taking that, but I sometimes think some of these trade-like courses that used to be out there mm-hmm. are not out there as much and that they need to be out there. And just in terms of basic living, I wonder sometimes how many people that are coming up actually know how to balance a checkbook because I know I try to balance mm-hmm. mine and don't always do the greatest job, but I know probably some of our younger folks don't even know how to balance the checkbook, and I would even argue some in their 40s and 50s are the best at balancing their checkbook. Continue this line of archaeology. It begins with getting outside of our contemporary concerns. I have discovered, especially since 9-11, I discovered by practical experience that not many young people who came to New York to make their fortunes stayed in touch with their families, and many of them did not, know much, about their, did not know much about their grandparents. And I have for the last 20 some years been asking people, do you know your grandparents? How close were you? Do you know about them? Did you hear their stories? Do you know their stories? Begin with the grandparents because that is a generation that will anchor our own sense of security. 
Um, and I'm afraid to say that in our society today, there's a remarkable, and this is, by the way, worldwide, a remarkable number of people, young people right now, coming out of school and into the society who never got to know their grandparents. Well, that's one Much thing I did get to know, both of my grandparents when they were living, but... Yeah. The, yeah. the one sad thing that I will say is that, and I got to know my grandparents and my great-grandparents, but I agree, there are a number of people that don't know their relatives of that generation or of the further generations and things of that nature. That is one of the things I will say that I have learned of the Asian societies is, I don't mm-hmm. know that I'm ready to live with my mother and my uh, grandparents, but y'all, as, I mean, <laughs> and that's a bad thing to say, but I do know that a lot of times... Indians and Pakistanians and a lot of the other Asian cultures, y'all sometimes are living three or four generations deep, and I don't know that I'm ready to go that far into it, that they're actually in the same household. <laughs> don't knock it till you tried it. I'm interested in hearing, you know, we have in some ways a world in flames, literally, in Australia and California, but how each of you see what you do today as taking advantage of what's actually a historic moment. There there are demonstrations about George Floyd's killing all over the world, and and many of them understand that it's not just George Floyd, but dozens, hundreds, thousands. It's like the Irish saw many thousand gone. I'm just curious, you know, to, to help me think about it, what what what? How do you see your role in this particular time? Of course, our you know, Australian friend figured it out. But but what are the rest of you doing? Pradeep, you go first. When you say, okay, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I guess the, the best next. way that I could answer that is um, is first and foremost to make sure my kids are okay. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have a five-year-old and a seven-year-old, and I, spe- you know, when I'm not when I'm not thinking about hundreds of thousands of kids in India, I'm thinking about my own mm-hmm. kids, who, yeah. you know, they are, um, you know, they're mixed race. They are young and impressionable. They hear what's happening in the world. They need, you know, to to be guided in in understanding what they're hearing, and you know, they're going to look back on this time. I think. And my hope is that they'll think of it, you know, sort of as that, that strange period where mom and dad were home all the time. Um, <laughs> and then I hope that they'll be taught, you know, and I don't, I'll be very honest, I'm not very optimistic about this, that, that they will be taught about the unrest that happened at this time and that, you know, that they'll be given some kind of historical context. And, you know, if I think back to my own education um, I'm not optimistic that that there will be a more val- a balanced view of history in the future. Um, so yeah, so I you know really I just try to make sure that that I'm helping them think about things in a way that helps yeah. them be good humans. That makes sense. And what about you, Brevin? And if I... to be quite honest with you, um, to answer the question that was posed. I, let me start by saying I'm a 35-year-old black man in America. So I feel that, you know, as far as what my role is in all of this, is to stay as sane and as, as calm as possible because, Absolutely. You know, 
I am the one essentially being hunted right now. So the thing is, is I, I say that to say this. I say that 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 depending on who you are, where you're from, what what ethnic group you identify with, all of those things are 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 different factors as to what your role should actually be, in my opinion. Because mm-hmm. if you know, if if it, for me, I'm trying to you know stay calm and keep my mental health together, but at the same time. Uh, my 35-year-old white friends are doing anti-racist work, <laughs> you know, and and trying to, you know, do things in, in their own within their own communities and the greater community to help get justice and battle and battle against these systems that are creating this kind of um, environment. So I, I I think that depending on who you are and where you're from your responsibility and your role in, in how you respond to the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery are very different things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting Can you I bring that up. Jumping, I don't want to hear yeah. from I'll show you in person. I, I want to bring you up in a second. But it's interesting you brought things up because I actually just saw um, one of our longtime activists here in this area before coming back here because, like I said, I went and got that. Um, I was – teasing Dean earlier that in between the two podcasts I went and got my hair cut and everything but uh, now that y'all can see it because this is the audio part and everything but I ran into <laughs> one of our activist people here in our community and she was actually saying that she is actually and she's probably maybe in the same age range that I am she might be a few years older or a few years younger but definitely in that late 50s early 60s kind of age range but Nia Wilson has been the founder of Spirit House and has been involved in a number of activism work for a while but I could tell that she was letting a lot of her young charges take the lead. But part of the reason she was letting them take the lead was because of COVID. Because, like I said, she also wants to – she has those underlying conditions. So part of it was that she wanted to be safe Mm -hmm. herself while having those underlying conditions, but also keeping – track of what's going on, definitely being involved in the ways that she can be involved, but Mm -hmm. probably not being involved as much in the streets because, you know, she's getting older and has some of those underlying conditions. So she's definitely letting some of the younger charge take the lead on this particular cause and everything, and also because some of the people that are leading the the charge are of a younger generation. So I do think that in that way we may be seeing a passing of the guard in terms of uh, who will be at the front of the struggle and everything. But I just wanted to add that comment. But uh, let me hear from my Australian friend. Yeah, I just wanted to to jump in here because um, one of the things that I find myself struggling with everything that's happening in the world at the moment, and, and granted, being on the other side of the world, I'm not in it. I'm not there every day. And so I don't get to experience some of the things that people in America do get to experience. But I guess looking from an outsider's view and my personal view, uh, our gentleman before said, depending on what ethnic group that you identify with. Now, you know, I mean, my skin is, is, is white, okay? My skin is white. However, I do not see myself as white and I do not see other people as black. I, I see us all as human beings. To me, there is no colour. There is no difference. It's what's inside a person that actually makes the difference. And so... As much as what happened to George Floyd is disgusting and as much as what's happening around the world with with people are disgusting and and the way people are being treated is disgusting, I don't see it as a black and white issue, if that makes sense. We all bleed. We all breathe the same air. We're all human. 
So, yeah, I mean, I just sort of like wanted to put that in there is the fact that, you know, the message that I'm wanting to put out there with my book and with everything else, with my children that have been home for 10 weeks, is that it's about spreading the love. It's about spreading the love and it's about getting rid of all of the hate that's out there for whatever reason people are hating. I think that's what's important. I would agree with you on some of that, what you're saying, but uh, just out of curiosity, how is it, just to, and to put it into other perspectives, but I do know that even in Australia, there is some time that racial divide, because I do know that there's the divide between, say, those that are Native Australian and the Aborigines, who you mentioned earlier, just like I know that there's the caste system mm-hmm. that still exists within India. I mean, I think that mm-hmm. India probably, and Pakistan and some of the others have probably made some progress, but those issues still are out there, and I don't know that has there been enough progress made, Pradya, in those regards? I mean, that, that's what I know from reading history, and I know that Gandhi was dealing with that way back when, almost even further back than Martin Luther King, because Martin Luther King actually learned some of his stuff from Gandhi. So, Absolutely. Um, is, are, are those issues still being dealt with? Uh, yes, absolutely. You know, the, the thing I would say, though, is um, I can only speak for myself when I say that as a South Asian person in this country, and you've heard Sri say this as well, Mark, you know, we would not be here. We, we could not be here if not for the pain and suffering of people of color that came before us, okay? And, and so, you know, I have to check my privilege every single day. And, you know, and I respectfully disagree with, with your other guest who says that it's not a black and white thing. It, it, it you know, to, to say that race is not um, a factor in, in, in human interpersonal dynamics is, it, it, it's just, it's not a reality. So, you know, for me, I'm, I'm Indian. I'm viewed, you know, a certain way by the society here. And I'll tell you honestly that, you know, it's, I don't know if it comes from the fact that we have a caste system in India or or what it is, but, you know, South Asians in this country, it's a big issue. We need to find a way to, you know, Sri says this all the time, pay pay down our privilege. And, And so, yes, to hopefully my new friend who, you know, is, is doing his best to just keep himself together in this very difficult time. I, you know, I just want you to know that um, I acknowledge that I will never understand your experience. But all I'm trying to do, as I said, is, is you know, raise my kids to think differently and, and, and be different in how they interact with people. Yeah, I think that that's the only thing that you can do is try to, um, like you said, raise people to mm-hmm. think in these kind of ways and everything. I did want to hear from both uh, Lucius and um, Sai as well as to what their thoughts on this is and and what they're hearing about just this kind of classism and racism that exists in society. Lucius, you want to go? Sai. Well, okay, you can back clean up. Um, I mean, I I come out of the Southern Civil Rights Movement. It never occurred to me that black people, African people, African-American people in this country were anything other than an endangered species. Um, When I was in Forest City, Arkansas, 
it's still if a black person was walking down the street and a white person was coming the other way, the black person stepped off the street into the gutter because if they didn't, they risked their life. And and um, it, it it to be, you know, obviously, I do not experience that, but I can empathize it and I can make sure that it is at the center of my understanding of what the situation is to be black in America. Um, it's it's um, you, you know you you have a target on your back, and if somebody shoots at, at that target. Too often, no one will come to your rescue. So it it is a reality, and so for me, um, and and th- and then I will say that I'm Jewish, and some forty mm-hmm. known members of my family were murdered in the Holocaust. To be Jewish in America is radically safer than to be black, but it is not safe. And we've seen in the last eight or ten years synagogues burned, um, congregations murdered. And I fight for a decent life for black people, not because I'm a bleeding heart liberal, because I'm on the list, even if much farther down. And I know that if the right in this country and the alt-right and the armed right if they can get away with murdering black people, they will eventually be able to murder people from India who have a slightly darker skin. And mm-hmm. what's happening, what is happening to trans, trans people who are regularly murdered and beaten brutally. And eventually, my family, my tribe, if you will, we're on the line. Again, I, I live a life of extraordinary privilege. But that can change, and, and having that awareness, um, having watched, having looked through family albums, and uh, and say to my mom and dad, "Who's that? That's your great grandmother. What? Where is she? We don't know." The letters stopped coming in 1942. So I, I, I think for me, um, it is a privilege to be able to support in very small ways the struggle of black people, because it actually is my struggle too. Thank you. Lucius? Well, as I mentioned when I was on the line with Sri a few weeks ago, uh, I was very influenced by Dorothy Sola, the German theologian who wrote a book on suffering. And the first chapter of her book opens with the story of aid workers. When aid workers arrive in a town that's been bombed out by civil war or any type of injustice or tribal wars, they know that their first task is to go in town, into town and listen to people. Find mm-hmm. someone who's sitting at the side of the road, sit at the side of the road with someone whose house has been blown away, someone who saw her film family, her husband and children blown away, the whole, whole house is in cinders, someone who's sitting there despondent. If they sit there, they could easily let go and die right there. But mm-hmm. the aim of the first task of, a social, of an aid worker in those situations of extreme warfare is to sit down beside that person. It doesn't matter if you know their language or if you know anything about them. Let them know that another human being is sitting there beside them and wait. Mm. And you might wait mm. a long time, but as soon as you hear that person beginning to talk, you know that they've been saved. 
That's the first lesson that every aid worker learns when they're on the field in war zones. Similarly, I wow. want to hear from everyone, everyone who has an idea about what we want. Where are we going? What is it that we want to create? Because after the Minneapolis abomination, everyone is in agreement that things should change, things must change. What is it we want to do? Specifically, not just overturn white supremacy, what, is, what are the steps to overturning white supremacy? What are the steps to creating a new society? What are the steps to dismantling the police force and creating something more community-oriented? What are the steps that we're going to take in concrete terms? And we should all be looking inward to find those things and never think that your voice is too small, wherever you are, to express those things. Because, again, we have all sorts of ways to communicate on what it is we want to imagine. We are also, I believe also, by the way, you know, the, remember the day the Mayan calendar ended some years ago, 2010, was it? The Mayan it was something calendar like that. was going to come to an end. The same day on the planetary calendar was the beginning of the age of Aquarius. We're going through huh. some very cosmic changes. And if you, whether or not you subscribe to this, it doesn't depend on your belief system. But we can see that we're going through some cosmic changes about what is the role of government, and what is the role of religion? And what is the organization, the very organization of our society is up for grabs? So if we have any voices out there who want to express themselves, if there are any voices who've gone through years of suffering and lost everything who want to speak up, now is the time. So I am very optimistic about what can happen if people speak up. Mm. Definitely. Well, I appreciate okay. all your powerful words and everything. Very well said. Um, getting ready to wrap up the show. We've got just a few more minutes to go and everything. But I want to go, and I'll start with Revan and work my way down. I want to hear from everybody if they've got, like, some final thoughts that they want to share with our listeners, and it can be, like, a message of hope or something along those lines that they want to share, and also if they would uh, give ways that they can reach you on social media. So, uh, Revan, I'll start with you. If you've got any words of uh, uh, yeah. hope or um, inspiration that you would like to leave folks with and then also if you let folks know how they can find you on social media and your website and just ways that they can reach out to you and learn about your music and what you've got going on okay yeah um as far as like you know words of 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 hope and inspiration and this has kind of been like a underlying conversation uh this entire call um i would definitely say you know the best things that we can do, um, you know, individually is just try to educate ourselves as much as possible about, um, you know, the goings-ons in in our own environments and the going-on in in the greater community. And, you know, the more truth we we deal with and the the more um, understanding that we have, you know, not only within ourselves but, you know, for those around us, uh, I think – bring is the, is the more empowering we can be, you know, to ourselves and other people. Um, so I'll definitely, you know, and also, I mean, just on a basic level, stay safe. <laughs> COVID is still out here, mm-hmm. you know, despite all, all of the other things going on that it's, it's not gone. It's the, the, the pandemic is not over. So, you know, wear your mask, do, you know, keep your six feet distance, do what you got to do, stay home if you can. Um, to those that are essential, blessings to you and and you know uh, good good spirits, good health. Um, as far as how to reach me, uh, yeah, um, my website is is the most direct way, brevinhamden.com. It's just my name, and um, 
I'm also on, on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat. Uh, I have a YouTube channel, um, but you can, you can navigate all of those from my website. Um, my studio also has a Facebook page and an Instagram page. Uh, it's Break Alive Studios, um, so you can follow me, find me there. And um, I've, uh, I've been, of late, I've been trying to, you know, I have some videos up now, but I'm trying to put more content. So, um, obviously, you know, with, with the pandemic, performing live probably won't be a thing in the near future. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure it'll come back at some point, but, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> between now and the end of the year, I feel like that's a little flimsy. So, um, but, you know, I'm definitely, I've definitely been doing a lot of recording, um, some with a band called Butcher Brown, who's based in Richmond, uh, a bunch of friends of mine, uh, Corey Fonville, great drummer, plays with, uh, Christian Scott and the Don't Work with Nicholas Payton and, and, a, a bunch of different artists and, um, but them, Orchestra Gardell, uh, the Shakedown, we've all got videos and stuff, but all of these things you can find via my website. I have... Uh, a lot of a lot of videos up there, you know. So brevinhamden.com, and also you can email me there, message me there. Um, if anybody desires to take drum or percussion or beginner piano lessons, I also do that. So. Sounds good, Lucius. Actually, I uh, should have started with you first, but I'll go with you, and then I'll come down to side. So, Lucius, tell folks how they can reach you if they're interested in reaching you, and um, you know sure. if you've got yeah. any uh, words of encouragement or last words of uh, inspiration that would be appreciated too yeah the best the best thing is to send me an email uh, my full name first and last all together l-u-c-i-u-s-b-a-r-r-e that's lucius bar at gmail.com is the best way to reach me i encourage everyone to express themselves to themselves to their neighbors to people around them and try shifting out ideas until we come up with some solutions that can, can take step by step and communicate to others. Wider and wider circles, beginning with your whole household, are the way to go. And I'm confident that if we put that into the works, in our digital age, there's nothing stopping us from doing exactly what we please. I appreciate that. Sa, it's your turn. So if you got any words of inspiration, my old friend, and definitely an old-time family friend and everything. So if you got okay. any words of inspiration I'm, or thoughts watching, along those lines. I'm and watching. I'm still going to try to get that show with you and me and my parents on and everything so we can talk about the old days of VSP. So I'm still working on that. Dad seems like he wants to cooperate. Uh, well, actually, the opposite order. Dad's being a little bit hesitant. Mom seems like she wants to cooperate, but we'll see what happens with that. But I am still working on that and seeing if I can't talk him into it. But if you got any words of encouragement and how folks can learn yeah, about yeah. all I mean, the great I, I things that I'm, you do. I'm watching, I'm, watching, I'm watching the clock. I want to make sure we leave time for our, our great sisters. Do everything you can to get everybody to vote. This is where the PowerPoint is. And, and if people don't vote, it's democracy in this country is lost. Um, best way to reach me, um, Mark, if you don't mind, just send everybody my email address. And, and I'm all over social media, but I'm 76 years old. Somebody else does it for me. I don't know what it is, but it's there. I appreciate you, Sai. Proud of you. You've become one of my new friends through Shree, so I definitely am glad that I finally got you on the show and everything. But if you want to leave folks the website for Magic Bus as well as um, just how folks can reach you in general, I know they can find you along with me on Shree's show. As a matter of fact, you probably got one going on right now, so we might even jump on that later on. I haven't looked to see whether we've got the notice for the one today or not. 
Brad here. Hello? Did I lose folks? Hello? Oh, Still listed up there, so. Okay. Okay, Friday. Yeah, I was saying um, if you would let, let folks know how they can reach you, things of that nature, and just wanted to say that I definitely yeah. appreciate you being one of my new friends through my buddy Shree, and definitely wanted to, if you had a word of inspiration as well as any thoughts that you wanted to share and ways that folks can reach you and Magic Bus. Thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, so, yeah, Magic Bus is, is simple enough, www.magicbususa.org. And if anyone would like to connect with me personally, I'm on most social media channels. Um, I'm the only Pradnya Haldapur, as far as I know, on the Internet. So, you know, really you can find me that way or I'm at P. Haldapur on Twitter. I appreciate it. Any final thoughts you have in terms of inspiration or a positive message that you want to leave people with as we wrap up this show? That would be appreciated as well. <laughs> I, I don't know about inspirational, but I'll tell you a joke uh, or I'll tell you a funny story, which is my kids were sitting in the back seat one day, and uh, all of a sudden my sweet, gentle five-year-old decides to say that you know he's going to hit the president over the head with a shovel and throw him in the ocean. And my seven-year-old daughter, his older sister, says, Xavier, you can't do that. That's polluting. <laughs> good point. So if we dock him and put him into water, that would be pollution. That's a good point. He might, your kids may have a very valid point there. So I have to agree with them. So, so yeah. uh, we, we, we so all know that there are things we want to do. To- hope for the future. <laughs> Thank you. That's definitely some strong hope for the future from your two kids, and I appreciate you being on the show once again. So my buddy from Australia, you got any last thoughts? And also I need to have folks know how they can find out about this amazing book and uh, how they can find you on social media as well. Absolutely. Now, one of the things I'd just like to finish up with is just to remind everybody on this call and in the audience that you know, everyone is doing the absolute best that they can with what they know and where they're at in their lives. And everybody's on their own journey. So just just try your best just to find the beauty and find the love in life because that at the end of the day is what's so important. You may not agree with what somebody says. You may not agree with something that's going on, but try to look past that and try and see the love and try and see the beauty that's actually behind every situation in life. And, and look for the confidence and certainty that you need to be able to take the action you need to take to get out there and do and have the life that you truly want to live. That would be my parting words. Um, as far as my book goes, look, if you've lost your job, you've lost your income, and you're looking for a way forward, then go and grab my book. It's at lockdowntookmyincome.com. That's lockdowntookmyincome.com. And, yeah, it is changing lives. So... Look, I hope I've been valuable, and um, thank you for having me. You've definitely been valuable. I think that I've enjoyed all the conversation with all of the amazing guests that we had. Dan, it looks like we had another amazing show. So uh, what are your thoughts? And I'm going to pull up what we've got coming up next week as well. But, I mean, we had some real heavy hitters there, everybody from the young lady from Australia to our Magic Bus executive director uh, with Magic Bus USA on to two folks that are, you know, even further generation than even I am that give us some wisdom from the ages in terms of Lucius Barr and Cy Khan and, of course, the amazing music uh, and the musical skills of Brevin Hampton. So we got to hear from some amazing folks, I think, 
but I want to know what you thought since you're my producer here and my partner in crime. So I led the interview as I usually do, but you know, I got to hear back my report from you <laughs> since you are my partner in crime. <laughs> well, you know what? It was, overall, it was a good show, and we thank everybody uh, that took the time out of their schedules to join us today. We greatly appreciate you, especially calling from other countries and everything else. Outstanding show. Like I said, we definitely appreciate you. Straight Talk with Dean and Mark, y'all, Monday night, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Don't forget our replay on the Skyhawk Radio Network tomorrow afternoon at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And if you missed those, then we have our replays on Radio Public, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Spreaker, TuneIn, Stitcher, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Podcast Addict, CastBox, and also right here at blogtalkradio.com. Now make sure during the rest of the week, get with the Level Podcast Network. In addition to this show, tomorrow afternoon at 1 p.m., it's the Less K-12 Better Show. They're just talking to kids about race. Then on Wednesday, we have uh, Men of Shake. The Minority Reports, they present misogyny and racism as a panel discussion. On the 11th is a replay of the Let's Talk About It radio show. Then on Saturday, uh, well, the Let's Talk About It radio show is at 5 p.m. on Thursday. And then on Saturday at 1 p.m. again is the replay of the Mark Lee show that they did today. All right. So make sure to lock in 10,000 listeners, 50 states. 73 countries we keep moving we keep going and we keep growing make sure that now it's time we're going to have those hard conversations after the kneeling after the protest what are we going to do to make this a little bit better because like i always say you walk outside your front door showtime and the world is your stage just make sure that people are not watching the rehearsal with that being said it's the six man dean geronimo have an outstanding week and we'll see y'all in seven days. And speaking of seven days from now, we've got another amazing conversation. We're going to have a gentleman that has worked on a film about the Harlem Renaissance and some of its history, both in the LGBT community as well as in our community. So he's going to be talking about that, but we've also got attorney Robert Patella, and he is down there in Atlanta, and he is a lifelong civil and human rights activist doing some amazing work. He's actually been involved in a lot of the things happening down there with the protests that are going on in Atlanta. I reached out to him after hearing him speak, and he's also a talk show host on CBS and some other places. He's definitely a well-known figure, so we've got him coming, and then we've got Robin Parrott coming back, but this time she's bringing a friend of hers, that being Mecca Nelson, who is a sister who has created her own martial artist and yoga instruction method called the Yoma Method. All right. We're going to be learning about the Yoma Method as well as what Robert uh, Patella has got to say about what's going on with the civil rights struggle and, of course, what Robert Williamson has got to say about civil rights in various communities. So it looks like it's going to be another powerful conversation again next Monday. And I believe that you did not mention, but I think we've got a replay also of the interview sometime this week that was going on with those beaver pageant environmental folks, and that's not replayed yet, I don't think. If I'm wrong, correct me, but I think when I looked at the schedule, that is also coming up in the near future, and they can learn about that. We'll put that on for Friday. (laughs) All right, cool. So that'll be on for Friday, and they can still vote. 
they, they could still vote because the voting is still going on, even though by now the pageant would have happened. They would have picked a uh, pageant winner, but, you know, it's a viral, I mean, it's a um, virtual world, not a viral world, but a virtual world. So they did a virtual contest, which meant it got extended. So they actually will pick the winner, not this weekend, but I believe the following weekend. So... You can still go there. You can still bribe the judges. That's right, Dean. They have a bribe the judge contest part and element to this crazy <laughs> pageant that they got. So you can go online. You can bribe the judges. You can vote for the candidates. You know, put some money in their pockets. Whoever win, wins, wins. But part of the system of this crazy pageant that they've been doing for a number of years is, yes, you can put some money in the judges' pocket to see if you can influence them. But it's all for a good cause. It's all for an environmental group that's based right here in North Carolina. They've been doing this crazy pageant for a number of years. I think that if you listen to the show, you'll get some tickles, but you'll also see that it is for a serious cause. So I hope that you'll check that out. Check out the uh, funniness that they've got going on. But, hey, I've already okay. put in some money. I bribed the judge. And I voted for two of the contestants. See. I might go and do a little bit more. You know, my money is a little tight. You know, like I said, you know, these are hard times, so the money's a little tight. But I dug up a little quarter, <laughs> and I did pitch it toward a couple of the candidates, and I did bribe a judge. So, Dean, you can bribe that judge, too. <laughs> does, um, you know what? I'm going to stay out of that one. I'm, I'll just watch and see what happens, you know. But uh, getting into the bribery thing, I'm going to step back out of that. <laughs> <laughs> Understood. Clearly understand. <laughs> Once again, it's been wonderful. Y'all take it easy, and we'll see you next week. And, of course, we might even see you doing some special interviews during the course of this week and the course of next week. I've already lined up some things. As a matter of fact, I know that later on, Dean, I'm going to be talking to Simon Lynn, and he is an artist out of London. So, you know, we're trying to find guests all over the world. So we're going to do one of those special interviews. I believe that one is scheduled for Thursday. And then I've got another one that I'm lining up possibly for Wednesday. So there will be some special editions that will be airing as well during the course of the week. As they come online, I will get them to you, Dean, and you will put them on our network. So I do know we've got Simon Lynn, and I know there's another one scheduled too. I just don't have StreamYard up right now, so I can't tell you exactly what it is. But there is definitely another one in the pipeline coming your way. Indeed. So we're going to keep it moving. Keep it locked here, y'all. The Level oh, Podcast I just found it out. The other one is a career coach all the way from Australia. So we're going to have somebody talking about career coaching all the way from Australia as well as uh, the musician on the tent. So, you know, those career coaches are all over Australia, apparently, because that's kind of what the one we had today was. But this is another career coach. So we're going to be talking career coaching as well as this kind of conversation. So it ought to be some amazing conversations happening. Indeed. See y'all next week. Peace.